0: Amen. You may be seated. Good to see you in the house of the Lord. I'm Pastor David. We are delighted that you have chosen to worship with us today. We're going to be looking at the book of Mark chapter 9. In fact, this morning we will finish Mark chapter 9. uh, The cost of discipleship. Oftentimes you hear the phrase, where are the adults in the room? Where are those that are are the mature people? And uh, if you're looking around the world today, there's very few of those available. Uh, In fact, sometimes you're wondering who is tending the the, the kids, who's watching the children, because adults are acting like such babies uh, in our culture today. But this morning we're looking at the cost of discipleship, what that looks like, For those of us who have been blessed to know Jesus, maybe you grew up in a Christian home where you have heard the gospel from an early age. I'll often say, I went to church for nine months before I was born. Anybody else in that same category this morning? You grew up uh, all those years going to church every single Sunday, hearing the truth of God's word. Folks, what what we experienced and what we were blessed to have, so many today do not have that. In fact, I would dare say when you leave to go to church on Sunday, you are probably the minority on your street or on your, on your cul-de-sac or on. In your, 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 in your neighborhood, do the minority going to church. In fact, one of our couples this morning said, we were backing out of our driveway and a, a lady was walking and she said, hey, uh, can you are you headed to church? And they were like, yeah, we are. She said, I just moved here and I'm looking for a church. And she said, I had one of your cards and I gave it to them, one of the invite cards, and gave it to her and invited her to come and visit our church. Folks, we have an opportunity to declare the name of Jesus here in the triangle and around the world. And And what it does is it requires those of us who have a foundation in faith. We have a a firm faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior to to rise up. And it's going to cost us something if we're going to make disciples here in our city and around the world. It doesn't mean that you can just live any old way you want to and say, well, I've got my get out of hell free card. No, it's going to require us to be the adults in the room. We're going to have to be the one that often makes concessions because we're trying to reach people with the gospel. It doesn't mean we compromise our convictions, but what we're saying is we have to have compassion. We have to have a heart for the lost of our city and desire to see them come to faith in Jesus Christ. One of the reasons I like expository preaching and going through books of the Bible is you're forced to deal with warnings that if you and I would say, you know what, I think I'm going to skip over that. If you're a teacher, maybe there's certain curriculum you love teaching and then you get to certain subjects or certain parts of the year and you're like, and you, you're talking to your coworkers. You're like, "What do you do on, on, on section 13, or what do you do on this particular area of the te- of, of the curriculum, and how are you going to handle that this year?" And you know, with today's culture, can you imagine my my my, te- my youngest two are in middle school, in seventh grade. I mean. Everything is funny to a middle school kid. I mean, everything's hilarious. Everything, uh, the teach, teacher turns around to, to you know, maybe use uh, something on a, a marker board or they're, they're pointing out something on a video screen or whatever. And the kids are all, there's a whole other show going on in the back of the room few Sundays ago, we had some guest speakers. I sat further back in the church, and I'm like, this is a whole different ball game back here. I mean, there's a sideshow going, I'm, I'm totally playing. It was a different experience from being down front and in a different experience of, of being up front. You know, I love preaching through the Word of God. And this morning's section of Scripture, you can't water it down because God's Word gives us clarity in how we are to live our lives. Last week, we were cautioned about living for personal status, having an attitude of superiority as Christians. So this morning we're looking at the cost of discipleship. Let's avoid causing a follower of Christ to sin. And we're going to dive right into our text in Mark chapter 9, beginning in verse 42. We left off in 41 last week. It says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin. It would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown where, church? Into the sea. He's talking about the importance of setting the right example for those who are watching our testimony, our attitude, our speech, our actions, the way that we conduct ourselves, that we call ourselves a follower of Jesus. There ought to be something different. About our lifestyle. And last Sunday we saw that Jesus put a, a young child in the, the middle. And he's teaching. And the disciples are kind of around him. And he sat a child there. And, and then he kind of held the child for a little bit. he was talking about the importance of setting an example. And he made the point that we must become least and last if we're serious about following Christ. We called, uh, we're called to receive the forgotten the marginalized, the, the unborn, children, orphans, widows, the poor, the disabled, those that are mentally challenged, those who are deaf and blind and imprisoned, and yes, immigrants, those who are persecuted, refugees, minorities, people that might look different than you, and folks, for every one of us, that looks different. But he's called us to have a heart to reach others with the gospel. So avoid causing A follower of Christ to sin. He picks up on that scene. Jesus refers to the little ones who believe in him. And what he's saying, he's talking about our brothers and sisters in Christ. He's saying people are watching your walk. They're watching what you say and how you live your life. And they're looking to see your kids in your house are watching. Does dad and mom's faith transcend beyond Sunday morning? Is there something truly to being a follower or a disciple of Jesus? Does it truly transform their walk during the week or do they act just like the world? Do they do, make the same decisions, do the same actions and activities that the world is? Does their life actually reflect Jesus? And folks, he uses a different word. He says little ones. He's referring to Christians as little children. And now little children in 1 John chapter 2 abide In him. He's giving us a a call toward being a follower, a disciple that sets an example. The word for sin here is scandalizo, which we get the word scandalize. It means to offend or entice or to be a stumbling block to someone. Most of us don't consider how our attitudes can cause a a fellow Christ follower to, to stumble into sin. He's saying they're watching our actions. They're watching how we live our lives and 1 Corinthians chapter 10, it says, give no offense to Jews or Greeks or to the church of God. I'm often grieved when I hear Christian people, people that attend church, people that go to church, say, you know what, Pastor, I just enjoy living in all of the Christian liberty. And I can do anything I want to. And I know what they're saying because they're saying, I'm not going to go to hell. I don't believe that Christ is going to kick me out of, of, of heaven. But they're, they're saying, I have the liberty to do whatever I want to as a follower of christ and folks you might have the liberty in some areas but with that liberty comes a cost it comes a responsibility because your kids are watching your talk your walk your actions the way you conduct yourself they're watching every year of our lives and first corinthians chapter 6 paul writes in verse 12 all things are lawful but not all things are helpful all things are lawful for me But I will not be dominated by anything. In other words, I won't be controlled. I won't allow anything other than the Holy Spirit of God to to transform my life and to to, to take uh, precedent in my life. And Jesus wants us to know how serious it is to cause another Christian to cave into sin. Look at the second part of verse 42. He says it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea, now this was a terminology that that people in that that time could could wrap their mind around a millstone is literally a it was often referred to as a donkey stone and it was it was several tons, and a donkey would would turn and spin it and it would be going around a, a stone and it would crush the grain and the image of a millstone necklace being hung around someone 's neck and thrown into the sea terrified people that were often couldn't swim they were terrified of of water or deep water and they were saying it would be better that a millstone were hung around your neck and thrown into the water jesus says preferable to to that than cause a follower of christ to fall into sin here's a few things ways that christ followers can fall into sin he says by not practicing what we preach in matthew chapter 23 gives some examples, woe to you scribes and Pharisees and hypocrites. He says you clean the outside of the cup of the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. He's saying these are things that we're often, we're, we're worrying about making sure everybody looks good on the outside. But he says your heart is far from God. Your heart is so far from, from what God intended. He says by gossiping about someone in, in Proverbs 26 Uh, Solomon writes, he says, for lack of wood, the fire goes out, and where there is no whisperer, quarreling ceases. Now, folks, if you've ever taken a snapshot, put it back on the screen for just a second, because I want us to see it. Folks, if if we get a chance, take a picture of this verse, because it's a reminder, if we're not careful, our words are used to destroy other people. They're used to tear down other people. We're cutting people down and 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 criticizing them we get on uh social media and we tear somebody to shreds a teacher who has spent hours and hours and years preparing to teach your child and you're destroying them on social media should never happen a student leader, a student worker, a student pastor has is, is spent years investing in students and you're destroying their name because you don't like what they're doing. Or, uh, a, mission, a worship pastor has is, is spent countless hours praying and all you're doing is destroying and tearing down the work of God. The pastor, well, I wish he wouldn't preach on this passage. Well, the Holy Spirit of God is the one that dictates that, not the person in the pew. If, if not the not a, a a a church board somewhere but no not uh, nashville but holy spirit of god dictates what we're studying and how he directs the process but it's just gossiping about someone when you cut out the whispering quarreling ceases it brings it to an imbit, by involvement in sexual morality first timothy chapter five this causes you to sin and leads others to sin as well Folks, if we're a Christian, God's told us as men, he says, we ought to look at other women as a mother, as a sister, as a child, and not defile them. He says we have a responsibility with, with our bodies to, to treat them with honor and with respect. By treating others unkindly and wrongly, we can cause rebellion or outburst of, of anger. Uh, Ephesians chapter 4, it, it gives a command, fathers, provoke not your children to wrath. Don't, don't exasperate your kids to the point where they're, they're frustrated all the time. It causes them to sin. By teaching false doctrine, we can lead people astray. In First Timothy chapter 1, it says, certain, uh, Charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths or endless genealogies, which promote speculation rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. And then it goes on, another one, by not gathering with God's people. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24, you know this verse if you've gone to church. It says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and to good works. He says, not neglecting to meet together as the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day, what's that day? The the day of Christ's return drawing near. The closer we get to the return of Christ, we need the body of Christ even more. It's vital to have a church body that we're going to reach across the aisle and encourage, put an arm around. and uh, Maybe the days of, of the, the, the church fellowship time, the handshake, uh, might be over and past and gone. And some of you, all the introverts in the building, will put their hands in the air and say, praise God. I mean, I don't like all the fellowship, big and shaking hands. But folks, there's something about a fist bump. There's something about an arm around someone, and there's something about it, a word of encouragement or a handshake to, to encourage someone and let you know you're not in this life alone. You're not walking this race, this road of Christ, uh, without the, the the help of other believers to come alongside of us. We need to encourage one another. He says, consider how to stir up one another to love and to good works. We are our brother and sister's keeper. We are supposed to encourage one another. So, my attitudes, my actions ought to encourage and build up the body of Christ. But then he goes a step further. We're going to look at the text here in verse 43. He says, Cut off anything that causes you to sin. Some of you are like, Cut off? I'm cutting off an arm. Just hang on. He's going to get there. Uh, it might be an eye. It might be a hand. Who knows? But let's look at it. He says, I must not ensnare others. To sin, I must be careful not to become entrapped in sin myself. Jesus uses the strongest of all language to communicate. He says it's better to lose a limb or an eye than to spend all of eternity in hell. So let's look at our text this morning. Verse 43, if your hand causes you to sin, what do we do? Cut it off, all right? It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands and go to hell to the unquenchable fire. Verse 45, if your foot causes you to sin, do what, church? Cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. If your eye causes you to sin, do what, church? Tear it out. Cut it off. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell. Where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. The hand, the foot, the eye represent the three major ways or big ways that we sin. The hand refers to our actions. The foot speaks of where we hang out and where we go. The eye stands for what we look out and what we look at our desires. Jesus said we're to deal severely with sin in our own lives. So often the church It's quick to point out the sin of those around us, but we fail to, we neglect in seeing our own sin. You know, what the Bible says worry about the beam in your own eye before you're worrying about the toothpick in someone else's eye. So often we like to point out everyone else's sin and we fail to acknowledge where we struggle. My failure to worship God. My failure to commune with God, to talk to God on a, on a consistent basis, to seek his heart, seek the heart of God on the matter, we make major life decisions and never once consult God. We make major decisions about our future, about our children, about our, our jobs, and we never once consider what God, ha- his word has to say on the matter, what he wants us to do, how he wants us to live our lives. Jesus wants us to deal deal severely with sin. He's using a figurative language when he says, cut it off and tear it out. We know that because in Mark chapter 7, we saw just a few weeks back, Jesus is the heart of the matter is ultimately a matter of the heart. So if our hand is offending others, if it's causing us to sin, he's saying, cut it off, but you know what? That's not the heart of the matter. The heart of the matter is still a matter of the heart. We have a sin problem that if we don't deal with the heart, we're going to continue to sin. So, well, I have no arm, I have no eye, I have no foot because I've cut all those things off. But you know what? I'm still sinning. The heart is still desperately, deceitfully wicked. So it's a heart matter. Jesus is not after physical amputation. He's rather talking about spiritual mortification because sin doesn't start in our hands. It comes from our heart. Out of the heart man speaketh. Well, ultimately he's saying it's coming from a matter of our heart. When we deal with disobedience severely, radically, and immediately, he says too many of us have become way too cozy with sin. He says if there's a relationship that's causing us to sin, get rid of it. If your feet are taking you in the wrong place that leads you to sin, cut that activity off. You can't go there. If your eyes are tempting you, cut that activity off. If it's a relationship with somebody who's bringing us down, cut it off. Ultimately, he's saying you and I have to be the adults in the room. We have to be strong enough to say, you know what, I can't go there because ultimately it's going to be a temptation for me that's going to ultimately lead to my downfall. It's going to be a temptation to other people. In relationships, it calls us to sin. Jesus is telling us there's nothing so valuable that it's worth someone going to hell over. The word better is used three times to help us see whatever we have to do now to sever us from sin is much better than us or someone that's watching us spending all of eternity in hell. In 2003, a man named Aaron Ralston was hiking in eastern Utah while he was descending a canyon an 800-pound boulder came, became dislodged and it crushed his right hand and pinned his right arm. Ralston said he hadn't told anybody about hiking that day, so no one was going to be looking for him. They knew, no one knew where he was. After being trapped for five days, he took a dull pocket knife and cut off his forearm. He then repelled Nearly 70 feet, hiked three hours before rescue failed him. Here's a question. If you were faced with the same dilemma, what would you have done? It was an 800-pound boulder. You can't move it. You either cut off your arm or you die. You lose a limb or you lose your life. What do you need to cut off this morning? What is it? What relationship? What activity? What is it that's holding us back from being the follower of Jesus Christ that declares the name of Jesus across the triangle around the world? What is it that's holding us back from being a bright light, a city that is set on a hill that cannot be hid? What do you need to radically remove? What action do you need to, to, to cease? Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, it says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. He says, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. What does he say? He said it's so important to understand the relationship that us choosing to put those things aside. It's a cost of discipleship, folks. But what it does is it sets an example for everyone around us I'm choosing to say no to these desires of the flesh so that Jesus Christ can be preeminent in my life. He can have the glory. He can receive the honor and the praise for how I'm living. John Owen said this. He says, be killing sin or it will be killing you. It's a constant daily thing. Uh, Billy Sunday says one reason sin flourishes is we treat it like a cream puff instead of a rattlesnake. I absolutely cannot stand snakes. I mean, I am terrified of snakes. I've warned my staff I better not find a rubber snake when I open my drawer in in my desk. I mean, somebody's not going to be working here any longer. I'm just, I'm my heart can't handle, it'll probably be me because I'll be dead. But, you know, the reality is, is don't, don't, don't scare me. I don't like snakes of any rubber, plastic, uh, you know, candy. I don't like any type of snake. I don't want to eat a snake, Uh, none of those things, but they terrify me, but I'm constantly warning my kids. When you see a snake, don't reach down and try to touch it. It's, It's not a pet. It's in the wild. And it's liable to strike you. And I have neighbors that are like, you don't kill... Don't kill copperheads they're they're they're, you know don't don't kill black snakes if it's in my yard it's dead i mean it's just there's no ifs ands or buts and and we waited almost a year to build our house because the other cul-de-sac had wetlands behind it i'm like nope not coming up in my yard i mean i'll wait two years or five years if i have to but i don't want any cattails growing in my backyard because that's a sign that snakes and other things creatures are are lurking underneath but folks we have to watch we have to be vigilant he says treat it like not a cream puff but a rattlesnake treat sin like it's so dangerous we're going to stay as far away from it as possible the word hell it's used three times in in this passage is the word Gehenna it was referring to the city garbage dump in Jerusalem and folks the background is pretty gross in ancient Israel during the reigns of King Ahaz and Manasseh, children were sacrificed to Moloch, a pagan deity. Unfortunately, children are still sacrificed in our society today as well. And, and the human trafficking and all of the, it's, it's mind-boggling we allow these things to happen in our culture. These sacrifices happened in, in a deep ravine and it was came to be called the Valley of Gehenna or Gehenna. The, the, the prophet Jeremiah spoke out a, against child sacrifice and King Josiah put an end to it, turning this valley into the city dump. It was where all of the refuse, all of the garbage of the city would go, and including carcasses of animals and the body of criminals were deposited in the stump to keep it from overflowing that would light it on fire. And as more incoming garbage would come in, it would feed those fires. And it was a constant cesspool uh, of, uh, uh, of, of destruction. Because people cons- considered Gehenna a cursed place of judgment and impurity, it came to serve as an illustration of hell. I've heard this passage of scripture preached on over, the, over my lifetime, but nothing gave me quite the clarity of the visual of this like one of our mission trips to Nicaragua a number of years ago, we were with one of our missionaries, Stephen and, and Terry Robinson, and Stephen said, he said, I want to take your, your group somewhere th- today. So where are we going? He says, I want to, we're going to go to the city dump. I've been to the dump. I grew up, uh, we didn't have, we didn't live in the city limits, and so we would take our trash to the dump. And it's this nice container that you back your car up to, and you put your bags of trash in, and, and, and it has a little compactor and, and all these. It's just a, a nice, clean way of, of going to the dump. It was nothing like that, folks. In fact, the picture that's outlined here in scripture, what they're talking about, Gehenna, is very much like that that picture. When we got to the city dump in, in uh, Managua, Nicaragua, it was literally fire. It was on fire everywhere. And um, it was absolutely, the, the smells were, were so gut-wrenching, it was hard to even describe. Josh, were you on that trip? Did you go to see that? I, I, I don't know if anybody in here got to be on that trip, but it's a smell you will never forget, because it was, it, everything was on fire. They were driving through fire, There's, uh, everything's burning, and, and one of the things that we recognized when we got there were there were thousands of people who called the city dump home? They live there. Children, two years old, running through the dump that's on fire, no shoes on, very little, if any, clothes on. Some of them had no clothes on, and they're running through this. This is their home. This is where they live. This is where their parents are raising them. They don't have schools. And I watched as these city garbage trucks would pull up and they would dump the garbage and children were standing underneath where the garbage was falling and it was falling on top of their heads. And I was thinking to myself, what world are we in? And these kids were, were trying to grab the garbage as it's coming out and I found out later that if they were standing there and it landed on them... They had first dibs on the garbage of what they wanted to eat what they could sell for a profit to recycle they, and they had first dibs on that and steve were you i don't know if you were on that he was on that trip as well whenever we got done it was like a a deafening silence of our team because everyone is sitting there going how in the world can these people live this way And folks, it's all they've ever known. And and there were missionaries that have started schools that are trying to educate these kids so that they have a chance of a life outside of the most horrific conditions we've ever seen on planet Earth. That's what it was like. It was a picture of hell. The image of the extreme horror of hell is designed to imprint upon our minds the reality of a never-ending punishment for those who reject Jesus Christ are you aware that Jesus spoke more about hell than he ever did about heaven are you aware that there are churches today that don't even mention the word hell they don't even mention it why because it's too uncomfortable to think about pastor we're living in 2022 everyone wants a positive uplifting sermon and that's important. But folks, if we fail to warn people of hell, it's to their own peril. Because the word of God says that we're all bound for hell. And were it not for God's grace. Him saving us, all of us would spend eternity in hell. There's a few things we know about hell. I can't read all the verses now that's in person, but you can look on the screen. Hell is an actual place. It's a real physical place. It's a place of eternal punishment and judgment. It's a place of terrible torment it's a place filled with misery and pain it's a place of unquenchable thirst and it's an eternal separation from God folks he says in verse 48 where the worm dies not does not die and the fire is not quenched it's a direct quote from Isaiah 66 he says they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who've rebelled against me Their worms shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and there shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. Hell is eternal. The fire is absolutely unquenchable. And folks, he says there's a satisfaction, there's a relief that cannot be found for those in hell. We're called to be careful how we live our lives. The cost of discipleship is high, folks. Because we, if we're a stumbling block, we keep someone else from understanding that I'm going to spend all of eternity in hell if it were not for God's grace and his compassion, his love, and his mercy. I've got to receive him. But he calls us, he says, live out the cause of Christ. Live out the cause of Christ. He wraps up this chapter in verse 49 and 50. He says, for everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, How will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves. Be at peace with one another. The word salt here is is used six different times in one form or another in three different ways. He says, embrace that suffering and sacrifice as a follower of Jesus. Salt and fire were key ingredients of sacrifice in the Old Testament. Leviticus chapter two, it it talks about our offerings should be filled with salt or covered in salt. Folks, it's all part of the process. He's telling us that we're to be living sacrifices who will we'll be refined through that trial, through that suffering. He says, Unbelievers are going to face the never ending fires of hell. But here's the question Would you rather endure the fires of hell as a lost sinner or the purifying fires of God as a sacrifice for his glory? See, Paul tells us in Romans chapter 12, he says, I, I appeal to you, brothers by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living what, church? Sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your what, church? Spiritual worship. He said it's a privilege to serve God, but we're called to be disciples, followers, fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. He goes on, he says, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of our mind that we may that, that by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. That's the cost of discipleship. He said God wants to work his plan, his will, his way in our lives in such a way. In verse 50, it says the salt is good. By saying it in this culture, it says the world cannot survive without salt in fact the word salary comes from the latin word for salt in those days the roman soldiers were paid their wages not in money but in salt that's where the phrase you're not worth your salt that's where it comes from it 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 comes from this very time jesus continues he says salt is good but if the salt has lost its saltiness how will you make it salty again the main source of salt came from the dead sea known as the salt sea in fact in 2019 when i was there we floated in the salts in the dead sea and what an experience that was it, it, it's mind-blowing but the coarse salt had impurities in it but it would cause contamination ultimately leaving the salt savorless salt with no flavor is absolutely worthless but folks what he's saying is are there impurities in our lives that we need to get rid of so that our, the salt of us, our relationship with Jesus, can shine and, and infect and make a huge impact on our city with the gospel. The world cannot survive without the salt of spirit-filled Christians. Say, so, Pastor, what's the application? We must intentionally influence those who are lost around us. Those of you that are starting high school tomorrow, you have an opportunity this year to be salt be a light in your context those of you that are teachers they're going to elementary going to middle high school college you have an opportunity to be salt to a world who is desperately in need of the savior verse 50 ends he says have salt in yourselves it's a present imperative it means as you're going through life allow your impact to Touch the world around us. It means as Christ followers, we're I mean, constantly, uh, constantly be evaluating the influence that we're having on the world around us. We need to live salty lives, making people thirsty for Jesus. In her book, Out of the Salt Shaker, Rebecca Pippert said this. She said, salt doesn't do any good if it doesn't come in contact with that which needs seasoning, does it? She said, "Too many of us keep our salt in the shaker instead of sprinkling it in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, on our school campuses. We walk through life and say, I'm just going to keep my blinders on and we'll keep focused. I'm only here to get an education, to get a job one day, to support my family. No, God has put you there as a light." He's called you to be the salt of the earth. He's called you to be the light of the world. I love our city, and I'm so I'm saying so thankful to live in a city that's that's growing, that's thriving. That all of you want to be here. Thousands and thousands are moving in, and and folks, it's an exciting place to live. And I love coming to it into the city from our direction, from Southern Wake County, because if you come up mcdowell street into our city it's it's just a unbelievable view sitting up on a hill you know what i'm talking about that view this summer there has been crepe myrtles that line that drive all the way into the heart of the city and it's absolutely breathtaking at nighttime as you drive your car north up mcdowell street you see a city that's bright the buildings are lit up i love it in the christmas time one of them looks like a christmas tree on top of it and all those neon led lights are shining everywhere and it's just a beautiful picture of a, a vibrant thriving bustling city that's what christ says our lives ought to be like we ought to be shining so brightly and having such a positive influence and impact on our city that when people see our lives They see someone who's sold out for Jesus Christ, that God has transformed, he's redeemed, he's changed, their whole life is completely different, and we're having a major influence and impact on the city around us. College students, did you go to school this week? Be that salt, be that light. Elementary students, as you go to school this week? Be the light that your classroom needs to see Jesus. Men and women, as you go to work this week, look at your office. That place that you call, say, well, pastor, I'm I'm, worship, I'm working remote. Then you're probably Zooming. You're probably, have a great attitude. Be a positive impression on every single person that you encounter. Because you have an opportunity to point someone else to Jesus Christ. The final challenge is this. He says, be at peace with one another. You see, it completes the thought raised earlier in the passage when the the disciples were arguing about personal status and group superiority. He says, as Christians, if we aren't at peace with each other, we won't be able to offer the peace of God to those who are at war with him, quarrelling Christians short-circuit our witness for Jesus Christ. will' so cost you something, but he says you have the opportunity to impact your family, those in your tribe, your community, your city, your church, your world for jesus christ heavenly father would you speak to our hearts this morning